committee, the committee will come to order. We are proceeding under the five-minute rule. Mr. Biggs. Thank you. One of my colleagues wondered how this panel can opine as to, the, as to whether the president committed an impeachable offense. And the answer, quite frankly, is because you came in with a preconceived notion. You already made that determination decision. And I'll give you, a, for instance, until the rec a recent colloquy, several of you consistently said that the president said, during that July 25th conversation with President Zelensky, you said, the president said, I would like you to do me a favor. But that is inaccurate. It was finally cleared in that colloquy, and I'm going to read it to you. I would like you to do us a favor, though, because our country has been through a lot. One of you said, well, that, that's because the president was using royal we. Here is the president's talking about the country. That's what he's talking about. It's audacious to say it's using the royal we. That's royal, all right, but it ain't the royal we. And I'll just tell you, when you come in with a preconceived notion, it becomes obvious. One of you just said, Mr. Feldman, you, it was you who said, and I, I'm going to quote here, roughly, I think this is exactly what you said, though. Until the call of July 25th, I was an impeachment skeptic, too. I don't know. I'm looking at an August 23rd, 2017 publication where you said, if President Donald Trump pardons Joe Arpaio, it would be an impeachable offense. He did ultimately uh, pardon him. In 2017, the New York... Um, Books, book review, review of books, Mr. Feldman, Professor Feldman said, defamation by tweet is an impeachable offense. And I think of the his history of this country, and I think if defamation or libel or slander is an impeachable offense, I can't help but reflect about John Adams, about Thomas Jefferson, who routinely pilloried their political opponents. In fact, at the time, the factions or parties actually bought newspapers to attack their political opponents. So this rather expansive and generous view you have on what constitutes impeachment is a real problem. This morning, one of you mentioned the Constitutional Convention, and several of you mentioned Mr. Davies, and you talked about the Constitutional Convention. And I, it's been a while since I read the minutes, so I just briefly reviewed because I remembered the discussion on the impeachment uh, as being more pervasive, a little bit more expanded. And on July 20th, 1787, it wasn't 1789, by the way, one of you testified was 1789. It was in 1787, July 20th, Benjamin Franklin is discussing impeachment of a Dutch leader. And he talks specifically about what he would anticipate an impeachment to look like. He said it would be a regular and peaceable inquiry that would have taken place, and if guilty, then there'd be a punishment. If acquitted, then the innocent would be restored to the confidence of the public. That needs to be taken into account as well. So I, I look also on a May 17, 2017 BBC article, which is a discussion about impeachment because President Trump had fired James Comey. Alex Whiting of Harvard said, it was hard to make the obstruction of justice case with this sacking alone. The president had clear legal authority and there was arguably proper or at least other reasons put forward for firing him. And yet, what we have here is this insistence by Ms. Gerhardt that 
this should be, that was impeachable. That is, that's contained in that article, refer you to it, May, May 17, 2017, BBC. What I'm suggesting to you today is a reckless bias coming in here. You're not fact witnesses. You're supposed to be talking about what the law is, but you came in with a preconceived notion and bias. And I want to read one last thing here, if I can find it, um, from one of our, our witnesses here. And it's dealing with uh, something that was said in a Maryland Law Review article in 1999. And basically, if I can get to it, he's talking about this, where he's being critical of lack of self-doubt and an overwhelming arrogance on the part of law professors who come in and opine on impeachment. That would be you, Mr. Gerhardt, who said something like that. I can't quite find my quote or else I'd give it to you. And so what I'm telling you is that is what has been on display in this committee today. And with that, I yield back. The gentleman yields back. Uh, a little while ago, Mr. Gates asked that certain material be inserted into, record, into the record by unanimous consent. I asked the, an opportunity to review it. We have reviewed it. The material will be inserted without, without objection. Uh, Mr. Liu. Thank you, Chairman Nadler. I first swore an oath to the Constitution when I was commissioned as an officer in the United States Air Force. And the oath I took was not to a political party or to a president or to a king. It was an oath to a document that has made America the greatest nation on earth. I never imagined we'd now be in a situation where the president or commander in chief is accused of using his office for personal political gain that betrayed US national security, hurt our ally Ukraine, and helped our adversary Russia. Now the Constitution provides a safeguard but when the president's abuse of power and betrayal of national interests are so extreme that it warrants impeachment and removal. It seems notable that of all the offenses they could have included and enumerated in the Constitution, bribery is one of only two that are listed. So Professor Feldman, why would the framers choose bribery of all the possible offenses they could have included to list? Bribery was the classic example for them of the high crime and misdemeanor of abuse of office for personal gain. Because if you take something of value, while you're, when you're able to affect an outcome for somebody else, you're serving your own interests and not the interests of the people. And that was commonly used in impeachment offenses uh, in England, and that's one of the reasons that they, spe they specified it. Thank you. Now, earlier in this hearing, Professor Carlin made the point that Bribery, as envisioned by the framers, was much broader than the narrow federal criminal statute of bribery. I think the reason for that is obvious. We are not in a criminal proceeding. We're not deciding whether to send President Trump to prison. This is a civil action. It's an impeachment proceeding to decide whether or not we remove Donald Trump from his job. And so, Professor Carlin, um, it's true, isn't it, that we don't have to meet the standards of a federal bribery statute in order to meet the standards for an impeachable offense. That's correct. I'm sorry, that's correct. Thank you. Yesterday, Scalia Law Professor J.W. Verrett, who was a lifelong Republican, former Republican Hill staffer, and who advised the Trump pre-transition team, made the following public statement about Donald Trump's conduct. The call wasn't perfect. 
he committed impeachable offenses, including bribery. So Professor Carlin, I'm now going to show you two video clips of uh, the witness testimony relating to the president's withholding of the White House meeting in exchange for the public announcement of the investigation into his political rival. As I testified previously, Mr. Giuliani's requests were a quid pro quo for arranging a White House visit for President Zelensky. By mid-July, it was becoming clear to me that the meeting President Zelensky wanted was conditioned on the investigations of Burisma and alleged Ukrainian interference in the 2016 U.S. elections. To the President's decision to withhold security assistance that Congress had appropriated to Ukraine in exchange for announcement of public investigation of his political rival. In the, ab in the absence of any credible explanation for the suspension of aid, I later came to believe that the resumption of security aid would not occur until there was a public statement from Ukraine committing to the investigations of the 2016 elections and Burisma, as Mr. Giuliani had demanded. That evidence, as well as the evidence in the record, uh, tend to show that the president met uh, the standards for bribery as envisioned in the Constitution. Uh, yes, it does. I'm also a former prosecutor. I believe the record and that evidence would also meet the standards for criminal bribery. The Supreme Court's decision in McDonough was primarily about what constitutes an official act. The key finding was an official act must involve a formal exercise of governmental power on something specific pending before a public official. Pretty clear we got that here. We have hundreds of millions of dollars of military aid that Congress specifically appropriated <coughs> The freezing and unfreezing of that aid is a formal exercise of governmental power. But we don't even have to talk about the crime of bribery. There's another crime here, which is the solicitation of federal, uh, of assistance of a foreign government in a federal election campaign. That straight up violates the Federal Election Campaign Act at 52 U.S.C. 3101. And oh, by the way, that act is also one reason Michael Cohen is sitting in prison right now. I yield back. The gentleman yields back, Mr. McClintock. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Could I begin just with a show of hands? How many on the panel actually voted for uh, Donald Trump in 2016? I don't Sh think show, we're show obligated to say anything about how no, we just, cast just our ballots. Show, uh, just show of hands. I, I will not. I, I, I think you've made your positions, Professor Carlin, very, the very clear. The gentleman will, will suspend and will suspend the clock, too. Um, I have you a right may, to cast a excuse me, you may ask the question. Right, well, let me rephrase may, the question. How, how many of you have supported? The clock is stopped for the moment. The gentleman may ask the question. The witnesses don't have to respond. How uh, many of you supported Donald Trump in 2016? Show of hands. Not, Thank you. Not raising our hands Pro is not Professor, an indication of an answer, sir. Professor Turley, this impeachment inquiry has been predicated on some rather disturbing legal doctrines. Uh, one Democrat asserted that uh, hearsay can be much better evidence than direct evidence. Uh, Speaker Pelosi and others have said that the uh, president's responsibility is to present evidence uh, to prove his innocence. Uh, Chairman Schiff's asserted, and we heard a discussion from some of your colleagues today, that if you invoke legal rights in defense of criminal accusations, ipso facto, that's an obstruction of justice and evidence of guilt. My question of you is, what does it mean to our American justice system if these doctrines take root in our country? 
Well, what concerns me the most is that uh, there are no limiting principles that I can see in some of the definitions that my colleagues have put forward. Uh, the, and more importantly, some of these impeachable offenses I've only heard about today. I'm not too sure what attempting to abuse office means or how you recognize it. But I'm pretty confident that nobody on this committee truly wants the new standard of impeachment to be betrayal of the national interest, that that is going to be the basis for impeachment. Well, that, that how many Republicans do you think would say that Barack Obama violated that standard? That's exactly what James Madison warned you against, right. is that you would create effectively well, a vote of no confidence standard in our Constitution. Well, then are, are we in danger of abusing our own power of doing enormous violence to our Constitution by proceeding in this manner? My Democratic colleagues have been searching for a pretext for impeachment uh, since before the president was, was sworn in. Uh, on this panel, Professor Carlin called President Trump's election illegitimate in 2017. She implied impeachment was a remedy. Uh, Professor Feldman advocated impeaching the president over a tweet that he made in March of 2017. Uh, that's just seven weeks after his inauguration. Are, are we in danger of succumbing to the uh, maxim of Lewis Carroll's Red Queen? Sentence first, verdict afterwards? Well, this is part of the problem of how your view of the president uh, can affect your assumptions, your inferences, your view of circumstantial evidence. I, I'm, I'm not suggesting that uh, the evidence, if it was fully investigated, would come out one way or the other. What I'm saying is that we are not dealing with the realm of the unknowable. You have to ask, we've burned two months in this house, two months, that you could have been in court seeking a subpoena for these witnesses. It doesn't mean you have to wait forever, but you could have gotten an order by now. You could have allowed the president to raise an executive privilege. Let me, I, I need to go on here. The Constitution says that the executive authority shall be vested in a president of the United States. Does that mean some of the executive authority or all of it? Well, obviously there's checks and balances on all of these, but the executive authority primarily obviously rests with the president. But these are all shared powers. Uh, and I don't begrudge the investigation of the Ukraine controversy. I think it was a legitimate investigation. What I begrudge is how it has been conducted. Well, I, I, I tend to agree with that. I mean, the, the Constitution commands the president take care that the laws be faithfully enforced. That does, in effect, make him the chief law enforcement officer in the federal government, does it not? That's commonly expressed that way. So if, if probable cause exists to believe a crime's been committed, does the president have the authority to inquire into that matter? He has, but I have to, this is where I think we would depart. I've been critical of the president in terms of crossing lines with the Justice Department. I think that has caused considerable problems. I also don't believe it's appropriate. That, but we often confuse what is inappropriate with what's in, impeachable. Uh, you know, many people feel that what the president has done is obnoxious, contemptible, well, but contemptible is not synonymous with impeachment. Let me ask you one final question. Um, the National Defense Authorization Act that authorized aid to the Ukraine requires the Secretary of Defense and State to certify that the government of Ukraine has taken substantial actions to make defense institutional reforms, for, among other things, for purposes of decreasing corruption. Uh, is the President exercising that responsibility uh, when, when uh, he uh, inquires into a matter that could involve uh, illegalities between American and Ukrainian officials? Yeah, that's what I'm referring to as unexplored defenses. 
part of the bias when you look at these facts is you just ignore defenses. You say, well, those are just invalid. But they're the defenses. They're the other side's account for actions. And that's what hasn't been explored. The gentleman's time has expired. Mr. Raskin. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I want to thank the witnesses for their uh, hard work on a long day. I want to thank them especially for invoking the American Revolution, which not only overthrew a king, but created the world's first anti-monarchical constitution. Your erudition makes me proud to have spent a quarter century of my career as a fellow constitutional law professor before running for Congress. Now, Tom Paine said that in the monarchies, the king is law, but in the democracies, the law will be king. But today, the president advances an essentially monarchical argument. He says that Article 2 allows him to do whatever he wants. He not only says that, but he believes it because he did something no other American president has ever done before. He used foreign military aid as a lever to coerce a foreign government to interfere in an American election to discredit an opponent and to advance his reelection campaign. Professor Carlin, what does the existence of the impeachment power tell us about the president's claim that the Constitution allows him to do whatever he wants? It blows it out of the water. If he's right, and we accept this radical claim that he can do whatever he wants, all future presidents seeking re-election will be able to bring foreign governments into our campaigns to target their rivals and to spread propaganda. That's astounding. If we let the president get away with this conduct, every president can get away with it. Do you agree with that, Professor Feldman? I do. Richard Nixon sent burglars to uh, break into the Democratic National Committee headquarters, but President Trump just made a direct phone call to the president of a foreign country and sought his intervention in an American election. So this is a big moment for America, isn't it? If Elijah Cummings were here, he would say, listen up, people, listen up. How we respond will determine the character of our democracy for generations. Now, Professors Feldman, Carlin, Gerhardt tell us there were three dominant reasons invoked at the founding for why we needed an impeachment power. Broadly speaking, it was an instrument of popular self-defense against a president behaving like a king and trampling the rule of law. It, but not just in the normal royal sense of showing cruelty and vanity and treachery and greed and avarice and so on, but when presidents threatened the basic character of our government in the Constitution. That's what impeachment was about. And the framers invoked three specific kinds of misconduct so serious and egregious that they thought they warranted impeachment. First, the president might abuse his power by corruptly using his office for personal, political, or financial gain. Well, Professor Feldman, what's so wrong with that? If the president belongs to my party and I generally like him, what's so wrong with him using his office to advance his own political ambitions? Because the president of the United States works for the people. And so if he seeks personal gain, he's not serving the interests of the people. He's rather serving the interests that are specific to him. And that means he's abusing the office and he's doing things that he can only get away with because he's the president. And that is necessarily subject to impeachment. Well, second and third, the founders expressed fear that a president could subvert our democracy by betraying his trust to foreign influence and interference, and also by corrupting the election process. Professor Carlin, you're one of America's leading election law scholars. 
What role does impeachment play in protecting the integrity of our elections, especially in an international context in which Vladimir Putin and other tyrants and despots are interfering to destabilize elections around the world? Well, you know, Congress has enacted a series of laws to make sure that there isn't foreign influence in our elections, and allowing the president to circumvent that principle is a problem. And as I've already testified several times, America is not just the last best hope, as Mr. Jeffrey said, but it's also the shining city on a hill. And we can't be the shining city on a hill and promote democracy around the world if we're not promoting it here at home. Now, any one of these actions alone would be sufficient to impeach the president, according to the founders. But is it fair to say that all three causes for impeachment explicitly contemplated by the founders, abuse of power, betrayal of our national security, and corruption of, of our elections are present in this president's conduct? Yes or no, Professor Feldman? Yes. And Professor Gerhardt? Yes, sir. And Professor Carlin? Yes. You all agree. OK. And do are any of you aware of any other president who has essentially triggered all three concerns that animated the founders? No. No. And no as well. Uh, Mr. Chairman, it's hard to think of a more monarchical sentiment than I can do whatever I want as president, and I yield back. The gentleman yields back. Uh, Ms. Lesko. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Mr. Chair, I ask unanimous consent to insert into the record a letter I wrote and sent to you asking, calling on you to cancel any and all future impeachment hearings and outlining how the process... Without objection, the letter will be entered into the record. Thank you. Um, during an interview, Mr. Chairman, on MSNBC's Morning Joe, on November 26, 2018, Chairman Nadler outlined a three-pronged test that he said would allow for a legitimate impeachment proceeding. Now, I quote Chairman Nadler's remarks. And this is what he said. There really are three, there really are three questions, I think. First, has the president committed impeachable offenses? Second, do those offenses rise to the gravity that's worth putting the country through the drama of impeachment? And number three, because you don't want to tear the country apart, you don't want half of the country to say to the other half for the next 30 years, he won, we won the election, you stole it from us. You have to be able to think at the beginning of the impeachment process that the evidence is so clear of offenses so grave that once you've laid out all of the evidence, a good fraction of the opposition, the voters, will reluctantly admit to themselves they had to do it. Otherwise, you have a partisan impeachment which will tear the country apart. If you meet these three tests, then I think you do the impeachment. And those were the words of Chairman Nadler. Now, let's see if Chairman Nadler's three-pronged test has been met. First, has the president committed an impeachable offense? No. The evidence and testimony has not revealed any impeachable offense. Second, do those offenses rise to the gravity that's worth putting the country through the drama of impeachment? Again, the answer is no. 
There is nothing here that rises to the gravity that's worth putting the country through the drama of impeachment. And third, have the Democrats laid out a case so clear that even the opposition has to agree? Absolutely not. You and House Democrat leadership are tearing apart the country. You said the evidence needs to be clear. It is not. You said offenses need to be grave. They are not. You said that once the evidence is laid out, that the opposition will admit they had to do it. That has not happened. In fact, polling and the fact that not one single Republican voted on the impeachment inquiry resolution or on the Schiff report reveal the opposite is true. In fact, what you and your Democratic colleagues have done is opposite of what you said had to be done. This is a partisan impeachment, and it is tearing the country apart. I take this all to mean that Chairman Nadler, along with the rest of the Democratic caucus, is prepared to continue these entirely partisan, unfair proceedings and traumatize the American people all for a political purpose. I think that's a shame. That's not leadership. That's a sham. And so I asked Mr. Turley, has Chairman Nadler satisfied his three-pronged test for impeachment? With all due respect to Chairman, I do not believe that those, those factors were satisfied. Thank you. And I want to correct something for the record as well. Repeatedly today and other days, Democrats have repeated what was said in the text of the call. Do me a favor, though, and they imply it was against President Biden to, to investigate President Biden. It was not. It was not. In fact, let me read what the transcript says. It says, the President Trump. I would like you to do us a favor, though, because our country has been through a lot and Ukraine knows a lot about it. I would like you to find out what happened with this whole situation with Ukraine. They say CrowdStrike. I guess you have one of your own wealthy people. It says nothing about the Biden. So please stop referencing those two together, and I yield back. Gentlelady yields back. Ms. Jayapal. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. This is a deeply grave moment that we find ourselves in, and I thought the threat to our nation was well articulated earlier today by Professor Feldman when you said, if we cannot impeach a president who abuses his office for personal advantage, we no longer live in a democracy, we live in a monarchy, or we live under a dictatorship. My view is that if people cannot depend on the fairness of our elections, then what people are calling divisive today will be absolutely nothing compared to the shredding of our democracy. After the events of Ukraine unfolded, the president claimed that the reason he requested an investigation into his political opponents and withheld desperately needed military aid for Ukraine was supposedly because he was worried about corruption. However, Contrary to the President's statements, various witnesses, including Vice President Pence's special advisor, Jennifer Williams, testified that the President's request was political. Take a listen. I found the July 25th phone call unusual, 
because in contrast to other presidential calls I had observed, it involved discussion of what appeared to be a domestic political matter. Common for someone who gets caught to deny that their behavior is impermissible? Almost always. And one of the questions before us is whether the president's claim that he cared about corruption is actually credible. Now, you've argued before the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court determined that when assessing credibility, we should look at a number of factors, including impact, historical background, and whether there are departures from normal procedures, correct? That's correct. So what we're ultimately trying to do is figure out if someone's explanation fits with the facts. And if it doesn't, then the explanation may not be true. So let's explore that. Lieutenant Colonel Vindman testified that he prepared talking points on anti-corruption reform for President Trump's call with Ukrainian President Zelensky. However, based on the transcripts released of those calls in April and July, President Trump never mentioned these points of corruption. He actually never mentioned the word corruption. Does that go to any of those factors? Is that significant? Yes, it goes to the one about procedural irregularities, and it also goes to the one that says you look at the kind of things that led up to the decision that you're trying to figure out somebody's motive about. So let's try another one. Ambassador Volker testified that the president never expressed any concerns to him about corruption in any country other than Ukraine. Would that be relevant to your assessment? Yes, it would. It goes to the factor about substantive departures. And Professor Carlin, there is in fact, and my colleague, uh, uh, Mr. McClintock, mentioned this earlier, a process outlined in the National Defense Authorization Act to assess whether countries that are receiving military aid have done enough to fight corruption. In May of 2019, my Republican colleague did not say this, the Department of Defense actually wrote a letter determining that Ukraine passed this assessment. And yet, President Trump set aside that assessment and withheld the congressionally approved aid to Ukraine anyway in direct contradiction to the established procedures he should have followed had he cared about corruption. Is that assessment, is that relevant to your assessment? Yes, that would also go to the factors the Supreme Court's discussed. And what about the fact, and I think you mentioned this earlier as one of the key things that you read in the testimony, that President Trump wanted the investigations of Burisma and the Bidens announced, but that he actually didn't care whether they were conducted. That was an Ambassador Sondland's testimony. What would you say about that? That goes to whether the claim that this is about politics is a persuasive claim because that goes to the fact that it's being announced publicly, which is an odd thing. I mean, maybe Mr. Swalwell could probably answer this better than I because he was a prosecutor, but generally you don't announce the investigation in a criminal case before you conduct it because it puts the person on notice that they're under investigation. And given all of these facts, and there are more that we don't have time to get to, how would you assess the credibility of the president's claim that he was worried about corruption? Well, I think you ought to make that credibility determination because you have the sole power of impeachment. If I were a member of the House of Representatives, I would infer from this that he was doing it for political reasons. If we don't stand up now to a president who abuses his power, we risk sending a message to all future presidents that they can put their own personal political interests ahead of the American people, our national security, and our elections, and that is the gravest of threats to our democracy. I yield back. 
The gentlelady yields back. I now recognize Mr. Gomert for the purpose of a unanimous consent request. Yes, Mr. Chairman. I would ask unanimous consent to offer article by Daniel Huff. Without objection, the, the article will be entered into the record. Thank you. I now recognize Mr. Reschenthaler uh, to question the witnesses. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. <clears throat> I'm starting off today doing something that I don't normally do, and I'm going to quote Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi. In March, the Speaker told the Washington Post, and I'm going to quote this, <clears throat> Impeachment is so divisive to the country that unless there's something so compelling and overwhelming and bipartisan, I don't think we should go down that path because it divides the country. Well, on that, the speaker and I both agree. And you know who else agrees? The Founding Fathers. The Founding Fathers recognized that crimes warranting impeachment must be so severe, regardless of political party, that there is an agreement that the actions are impeachable. But let's go back to Speaker Pelosi's, Pelosi's words just one more time. The Speaker says the case for impeachment must be also compelling. Well, after last month's shift show, this is what we learned. There is no evidence that the President directed anyone to tell the Ukrainians that aid was conditioned on investigation. Aside from the mere presumptions by Ambassador Sondland, there is no evidence that Trump was conditioning aid on investigation. And if you doubt me, just go back to the actual transcript, because never in that call was the 2020 election mentioned, and never in that call was military aid mentioned. In fact, President Trump told Senator Johnson on 31 August that aid was not conditioned on investigation. Rather, President Trump was rightfully skeptical about the Ukrainians. Their country has a history of corruption, and he merely wanted the Europeans to contribute more to a problem in their own backyard. But I think we can all agree that it's appropriate for the president, as a steward of taxpayer dollars, to ensure that our money isn't wasted. Uh, I said I wasn't going to go back to Speaker Pelosi, but I, I do want to go back because I forgot. She also said that impeachment should be only pursued when it's, quote, unquote, overwhelming. So it's probably not good for the Democrats that none of the witnesses who testified before the Intel Committee were able to provide firsthand evidence of a quid pro quo. But I forgot we're calling it bribery now after the focus group last week. And there's no evidence of bribery either. Instead, the two people who did have firsthand knowledge, the president and President Zelensky, both say there was no pressure on the Ukrainians. And again, the transcript of July 25th backs this up. And to go back to Nancy Pelosi one more time, she said that the movement for impeachment should be, quote unquote, bipartisan which is actually the same sentiment echoed by our chairman, Jerry Nadler, who in 1998 said, and I quote, there must never be a narrowly voted impeachment supported by one of the major political parties and opposed by another. Well, when the House voted on the Democrats' impeachment inquiry, it was just that. It was a, the only bipartisan vote was the one imposing the inquiry. The partisan vote was the one to move forward with the inquiry. So we're 0 for 3. Let's face it, this is a sham impeachment against President Trump. It's not compelling, it's not overwhelming, and it's not bipartisan. So even by the Speaker's own criteria, this has failed. Rather, what this is is nothing more than a partisan witch hunt which denies the fundamental fairness of our American justice system and denies due process to the President of the United States. The Democrats' case is based on nothing more than thoughts, 
feelings and conjectures and a few, the thoughts and feelings of a few unelected career bureaucrats. And the American people are absolutely fed up. Instead of wasting our time on this, we should be doing things like passing USMCA, lowering the cost of prescription drugs, and working on our failing infrastructure in this country. With that said, Mr. Turley, I've watched as your words have been twisted and mangled all day long. Is there anything you would like to clarify? Um, only this. I think that one of the disagreements that we have, and I have with my esteemed colleagues, uh, is what makes a, a legitimate uh, um, impeachment. Not what technically satisfies an impeachment. There's very few technical requirements of an impeachment. The question is, what is expected of you? And my objection is that there is a constant preference for inference over information, for presumptions over proof. That's because this record hasn't been developed. And if you're going to remove a president, if you believe in democracy, if you're going to remove a sitting president, then you have an obligation not to rely on inference when there's still information you can gather. And that's what I'm saying. It's not that you can't do this. You just can't do it this way. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. The gentleman yields back. I now recognize Ms. Jackson Lee for the purpose of unanimous consent request. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I'd like unanimous consent to place in the record a statement, new statement, from checks and balances on President Trump's abuse of offices without by objection, the Republican and Democratic Attorney Generals. I ask unanimous consent. Without objection, uh, I now recognize Ms. Demings. Five minutes for questioning the witnesses. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. As a former law enforcement official, I know firsthand that the rule of law is the strength of our democracy, and no one is above it not our neighbors in our various communities, not our co-workers, and not the President of the United States. Yet the President has said that he cannot be prosecuted for criminal conduct, that he need not comply with congressional requests and subpoenas. Matter of fact, the President is trying to absorb himself of any accountability. Since the beginning of the investigation in early September, the House sent multiple letters, document requests, and subpoenas to the White House. Yet the President has refused to produce documents and has directed others not to produce documents. He has prevented key White House officials from testifying. The President's obstruction of Congress is pervasive. Since the House began its investigation, the White House has produced zero subpoenaed documents. In addition, at the President's direction, more than a dozen members of his administration have defied congressional subpoenas. The following slide shows those who have refused to comply at the President's direction. We are facing a categorical blockade by a president who's desperate to prevent any investigation into his wrongdoing. Professor Gerhardt, has a president ever refused to cooperate in an impeachment investigation? Not until now. And any president who, I know Nixon delayed or tried to delay uh, turning over information, 
when that occurred, was it at the same level that we're seeing today? Um, President Nixon also had ordered his subordinates to cooperate and testify. He didn't shut down any of that. Uh, he produced documents, and there were times, of, there were certainly disagreements, but there was not a wholesale, broad-scale, across-the-board refusal to even recognize the legitimacy of this House doing an inquiry. Did President Nixon's obstruction result in an article of impeachment? Yes, ma'am, Article 3. Professor Feldman, is it fair to say that if a president stonewalls an investigation like we are clearly seeing today into whether he has committed an impeachable offense, he risks rendering the impeachment power moot? Yes, and indeed, that's the inevitable effect of a president refusing to participate. He's denying the power of Congress under the Constitution to oversee him and to exercise its capacity to impeach. Pre Professor Gerhardt, when a president prevents witnesses from complying with congressional subpoenas, are we entitled to make any presumptions about what they would say if they testified? Yes, ma'am, you are. And I might just point out that one of the difficulties with asking for a more thorough investigation is that's exactly what the House has tried to conduct here. And the president has refused to comply with subpoenas and other requests for information. That's where the blockage occurs. That's why there are documents not produced and why there are people not testifying that people here have said today they want to hear from. In relation to what you just said, Ambassador Sondland testified, and I quote, everyone was in the loop. It was no secret. Professor Gerhardt, how is Ambassador Sondland's testimony relevant here? His uh, testimony is relevant. It's also rather chilling uh, to hear him say that everybody's in the loop. And when he says that, he's talking about the people at the highest levels of our government, all of whom are refusing to testify under oath or comply with subpoenas. Professors, I want to thank you for your testimony. The president used the power of his office to pressure a foreign head of state to investigate an American citizen in order to benefit his domestic political situation. After he was caught, and I do know something about that, this president proceeded to cover it up and refused to comply with valid congressional subpoenas. The framers included impeachment in, their, in the Constitution to ensure that no one, no one is above the law, including and especially the President of the United States. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and I yield back. Gentlelady yields back. Uh, Mr. Klein is recognized. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Oh, it's just past 5 o'clock, and a lot of families are just getting home from work right now. They're turning on the TV, and they're wondering what they're watching on TV. They're asking themselves, is this a rerun? Because I thought I saw this a couple of weeks ago. But no, this is not a rerun, unfortunately. This is Act 2 of the three-part tragedy, the impeachment of President Trump. And what we're seeing here is uh, several very accomplished constitutional scholars uh, attempting to divine uh, the intent, whether it's of the president or of the various witnesses who appeared uh, during the Schiff hearings. And it's very frustrating to me as a member of the Judiciary Committee uh, why we are where we are today. Uh, I asked to be a member of this committee because of its storied history, because it was the defender of the Constitution, uh, because it was one of the oldest committees in the Congress uh, established by another Virginian, John George Jackson. It's because two of my 
immediate predecessors, uh, Congressman Bob Goodlad, and, uh, who chaired this committee, and Congressman Caldwell Butler uh, also served on this committee. Uh, but the committee that they served under, uh, served on is dead. That committee doesn't exist anymore. That committee is gone. Apparently now we don't even get to sit in the Judiciary Committee room. We're in the Ways and Means Committee room. I don't know why. Uh, maybe because there's more room. Maybe because uh, the, the portraits of the various chairmen uh, who would be staring down at us uh, might just intimidate uh, the other side as they attempt, attempt what <coughs> is essentially a sham impeachment of this president. Uh, you know, looking at where we are, the lack of the use of the Rodino rules in this process is shameful. The fact that we got witness testimony for this hearing this morning is shameful. The fact that we got the Intelligence Committee report yesterday, 300 pages of it, is shameful. I watched the Intelligence Committee hearings from the back although I couldn't watch them all because the Judiciary Committee actually scheduled business during the Intelligence Committee hearings, so the Judiciary Committee members weren't able to watch all of the hearings, but I didn't get to, uh, I get to re read the transcripts of the hearings that were held in private. I was not able uh, to be a part of the Intelligence Committee hearings that were in the SCIF, we haven't seen the evidence from the Intelligence Committee yet. We've asked for it. We haven't received it. We haven't heard from any fact witnesses yet before we get to hear from these constitutional scholars about whether or not the facts rise to the level of an impeachable offense. Mr. Turley, it's not just your family and dog who are angry. Uh, many of us on this committee are angry. Many of us watching at home across America are angry uh, because this show has degenerated into a farce. And as I said, the Judiciary Committee of my predecessors is dead. And I look to a former chairman, Daniel Webster, who said, we are all agents of the same supreme power, the people. And it's the people who elected this president in 2016 and it's the people who should have the choice as to whether or not to vote for this president in 2020. Not the members of this committee, not Speaker Nancy Pelosi, and not the members of this House of Representatives. It should be the people of the United States who get to decide uh, who their president is in 2020. I asked uh, several questions about obstruction of justice to uh, Mr. Mueller, when he testified, um, Mr. Turley, I know that you mentioned uh, obstruction of justice several times in your testimony. I want to yield to Mr. Ratcliffe to ask a concise question about that issue. I thank the gentleman for yielding. Um, Professor Turley, in the last few days we've been hearing that uh, despite no questions to any witnesses during the first two months of the first phase of this impeachment inquiry, that the Democrats may be dusting off uh, the obstruction of justice portion of the Mueller report. Um, seems to me that we all remember how painful it was uh, to listen to special counsel's analysis of the obstruction of justice portion uh, of that report. Um, I'd like you to address the fatal flaws from your perspective with regard to the obstruction of justice portion of that 
The gentleman's forward. time has expired. The witness may answer the question briefly. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I, I've been a critic of, of the obstruction theory behind the uh, Russian investigation uh, because, once again, it doesn't meet what I think are the clear standards for obstruction. There were 10 issues that Mueller addressed. The only one that I think was that raised a serious issue, quite frankly, was the matter with Don McGahn. There's a disagreement about that. But also, the Department of Justice rejected the obstruction of justice claim, and it was not just the Attorney General. It was also the Deputy Attorney General, Rod Rosenstein. The gentleman is well expired. The gentleman's time is well expired. Uh, Ms. Uh, Mr. Correa. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and I'd like to thank our witnesses for being here today. I can assure you your testimony is important not only to this body, but to America that is listening very intently on what the issues before us are and why is it so important that all of us understand the issues before us. Professor Feldman, um, as was just discussed, President Trump has ordered the executive branch to completely blockade the efforts of this House to investigate whether he committed high crimes and misdemeanors in his dealings with the Ukraine. Is that correct? Yes, it is. President Trump has also asserted that many officials are somehow absolutely immune from testifying in this impeachment inquiry. On the screen behind you is the opinion by Judge Jackson, a federal judge here in D.C., that rejects President Trump's assertion. President, uh, Professor Feldman, do you agree with Judge Jackson's ruling that President Trump has invoked a non-existent legal basis to block witnesses from testifying in this impeachment inquiry? I agree with the thrust of Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson's opinion. I think that um, she correctly held that there is no absolute immunity which would protect uh, a presidential advisor from having to appear before the House of Representatives and testify. She did not make a ruling as to whether executive privilege would apply in any given situation. Uh, and I think that was also appropriate because the issue had not yet arisen. And let me quote Judge Jackson, open quote, the primary takeaway from the past 250 years of recorded American history is that presidents are not kings, close quote. Professor Feldman, in the framers' view, does the president act more like a leader of democracy or more like a monarch when he orders officials to defy Congress as it tries to investigate abuse of power and corruption of electeds? Sir, I don't even think the framers could have imagined that a president would flatly refuse to participate in an impeachment inquiry, given that they gave the power of impeachment to the House of Representatives and assumed that the structure of the Constitution would allow the House to oversee the president. Thank you. Uh, Professor Gerhardt, yes. where can we look in the Constitution to understand whether the president must comply with the impeachment investigations? I think you can look throughout the entire Constitution. A good place, of course, includes the Supremacy Clause. The president also takes an oath. He takes an oath to support and defend the Constitution of the United States. That, that, comes, that means that he's assuming office with certain constraints on what he may do, and that there are uh, measures for accountability for any failure to follow his duty uh, or follow uh, the Constitution. Thank you. And the president has said that he is above the law, that Article Two of the Constitution allows him to, and I quote, do whatever I want. That can't be true. Judge Jackson has said that no one is above the law. Personally, I grew up 
in California in the 1960s. It was a time when we were going to beat the Russians to the moon. We were full of optimism. We believed in, America, in American democracy. We were the best in the world. And back home on Main Street, my mom and dad struggled to survive day to day. My mom worked as a maid cleaning hotel rooms for a buck fifty an hour, and my dad worked at a local paper mill trying to survive day to day. And what got us up in the morning was the belief, the optimism that tomorrow was going to be better than today. We're a nation of freedom, democracy, economic opportunity, and we always know that tomorrow is going to be better. And today, I personally sit as a testament to the greatness of this nation, me, out of the hoods, and Congress. And I sit here in this committee room also with one very important mission, which is to keep the American dream alive, to ensure that all of us are equal, to ensure that nobody, nobody is above the law, and to ensure that our Constitution and that our congressional oversight of the presidency is still something with meaning. Thank you, Mr. Chair. I yield back. The gentleman yields back, Mr. Armstrong. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. You know, all day long we've been sitting here and listening to my friends across the aisle and their witnesses claim that the president demanded Ukraine do us a favor by assisting in two 2020 re-election campaign before he would release the military aid. This is like everything else in the sham impeachment, purposefully misleading and not based on the facts. So let's review the actual transcript of the call. They never mentioned the 2020 election. They never mentioned military aid. It does, however, clearly show that the favor pre the president requested was assistance with the ongoing investigation into the 2016 election. Those investigations, particularly the one done, being run by U.S. Attorney Jeff Durham, should concern Democrats. And the transcript of this call shows that the president was worried about the efforts of Ukraine relating to the 2016 election. We know this, and notice I'm using the word no, and not the word infer, from reading the transcript and because he spoke about it ending with Mueller. We know this because he wants the Attorney General to get in touch with the Ukrainians about the issue. We have a treaty with Ukraine governing these sorts of international investigations. But like so many other things, these facts are inconvenient for Democrats. They don't fit the impeachment narrative, so they're misrepresented or ignored. And I think it's important when we talk about this, and I, whatever the burden of proof, beyond a reasonable doubt, clear and convincing evidence, whether it's a judicial hearing, a quasi-judicial hearing, or a congressional hearing, when we're talking about these issues, I think we need to start with how we look at it. And I'm not a constitutional law professor, I'm just an old criminal defense attorney. But when I walk into a courtroom, I think of three things. What's the crime charge? What's the conduct? And who's the victim? And we've managed to make it till 5 o'clock today before we've talked about the alleged victim of the crime. And that's President Zelensky. And three different times, President Zelensky, at least three different times, has denied being pressured by the president. The call shows laughter, pleasantries, cordiality. September 25th, President Zelensky states, no, you heard that we had a good phone call. It was normal. We spoke about many things. I think you read it, and nobody pushed me. October, 20, October 10th, President Zelensky had a press conference, and I encourage everybody to watch it. Even if you don't understand it, 90% of communication is nonverbal. You tell me if you think he's lying. 
there was no blackmail. December 2nd, this Monday, I never talked to the president from the position of quid pro quo. So we have the alleged, alleged victim of quid pro quo, bribery, extortion, whatever we're dealing with now today, repeatedly and adamantly shouting from the rooftops that he never felt pressure, that he was not the victim of anything. So in order for this whole thing to stick, we have to believe that President Zelensky is a pathological liar or that the Ukrainian president and the country are so weak that he has no choice but to parade himself out there, demoralize himself for the good of his country. Either of these two assertions weakens their countries and harms our efforts to help the Ukraine. And also begs the question of how on earth did President Zelensky withstand this illegal and impeachable pressure to begin with? Because this fact still has not changed. The aid was released to Ukraine and did not take any action from them in order for it to flow. And with that, I yield to my friend, Mr. Jordan. I thank the gentleman for yielding. Uh, Professor Carlin, context is important, isn't it? Yes, sir. Yeah, because just a few minutes ago, when, when the, our colleague from Florida presented a statement you made, you said, well, you got to take that statement in context. But it seems to me you don't want to extend the same or apply the same standard to the president. Because the now famous quote, I would like you to do us a favor, you said about an hour and a half ago, that that didn't mean us, didn't mean us, it meant the president himself. But that's that, the clear reading of this, I would like you to do us a favor, though, because, you know what the next two words are? Um, I don't have the document. I'll tell you, because our country, he didn't say, I would like you to do me a favor, though, because I have been through a lot. He said, I want you to do us a favor, though, because our country has been through a lot. You know what this, this call, when this call happened? Happened the day after Mueller was in front of this committee. Of course, our country put, was put through two years of this. And the idea that you're now going to say, oh, this is the royal we, and he's talking about himself, ignores the entire context of his statement. That whole paragraph, you know what he ends in that paragraph with? Talking about Bob Mueller. And this is, this is the basis for this impeachment, this call. It couldn't be further from the truth. You want the, you want the standard to apply when, when Representative Gates makes one of your statements, oh, you got to look at the context. But when the President of the United States is clear, you try to change his word, and when the context is clear, he's talking about the two years that this country went through because of this Mueller report. Gentlemen's Somehow that standard doesn't apply to the President. The that, is, that is ridiculous. The gentleman's time has expired. Ms. Scanlon. I want to thank our constitutional experts for walking us through the framers thinking on impeachment and why they decided it was a necessary part of our Constitution. I'm going to ask you to help us understand the implications of the President's obstruction of Congress's investigation into his use of the office of the President to squeeze the Ukrainian government to help the Trump re-election campaign. And there's certainly hundreds of pages on how one reaches that conclusion. We know the President's obstruction did not begin with the Ukraine investigation. Instead, his conduct is part of a pattern and I'll direct your attention to the timeline on the screen. In the left-hand column, we see the President's statement from his July call in which he pressured Ukraine, a foreign government, to meddle in our elections. Then once Congress got wind of it, the President tried to cover up his involvement by obstructing the congressional investigation and refusing to cooperate. But this isn't the first time we've seen this kind of obstruction. In the right-hand column, we can flash back to the 2016 election when the president welcomed and used Russians' interference in our election. And again, when the special counsel and then this committee tried to investigate the extent of his involvement, 
he did everything he could to cover it up. So it appears the president's obstruction of investigations is part of a pattern. First, he invites foreign powers to interfere in our elections. Then he covers it up. And finally, he obstructs lawful inquiries into his behavior, whether by Congress or law enforcement. And then he does it again. So Professor Gerhardt, how does the existence of such a pattern help determine whether the president's conduct is impeachable? The pattern, of course, um, gives us a, a tremendous insight into the context of his behavior. When he's acting, and how do we explain those actions? By looking at the pattern. And we can infer, a very, I think a very strong inference, in fact, is that this is deviating from the usual practice, and he's been systematically heading towards an, a culmination where he can ask this question. By the way, after the tw July 25th call, the money's not yet released. Not, and there's ongoing conversations we learned from other testimony that essentially um, the money is being withheld because the president wanted to make sure the deliverable was going to happen. That is the, the announcement of an investigation. And in addition to the money not being released, there also was not the White House um, meeting, which was so important to Ukrainian security, right? Yes, ma'am. That's right. Okay. Uh, Professor Feldman, we noted previously that a federal district court recently rejected the president's attempt to block witnesses from testifying to Congress, saying that presidents are not kings. The founders included two critical provisions in our Constitution to prevent our president from becoming a king and our democracy from becoming a monarchy. And those protections were presidential elections and impeachment, correct? Correct. Uh, based on the pattern of conduct that we're discussing today, the pattern of inviting foreign interference in our elections for political gain, and then obstructing lawful investigation, has the president undermined both of those protections? He has, and it's crucial to note that the victim of a high crime and misdemeanor, such as the president's alleged to have committed, is not President Zelensky and is not the Ukrainian people. The victim of the high crime and misdemeanor is the American people. Alexander Hamilton said very clearly that the nature of a high crime and misdemeanor is that they are related to injuries done to the society itself. We, the American people, are the victims of the high crime and misdemeanor. And what is the appropriate remedy in such a circumstance? The framers created one remedy to respond to high crimes and misdemeanors, and that was impeachment. Thank you. You know, I've spent over 30 years working to help clients and school children understand the importance of our constitutional system and the importance of the rule of law. So the president's behavior is deeply, deeply troubling. The president welcomed and used election interference by Russia, publicly admitted he would do it again, and did in fact do it again by soliciting election interference from Ukraine. And throughout, the president has tried to cover up his misconduct. This isn't complicated. The founders were clear, and we must be too. Such behavior in a president of the United States is not acceptable. I yield back. The gentlelady yields back. Uh, Mrs. Cicilline, you be recognized for unanimous consent request. Uh, Mr. Chairman, I ask unanimous consent that a document which lists the 400 pieces of legislation passed by the House 275 bipartisan bills, 80% which remain languishing in the Senate, be made a part of the record in response to Mr. Gates' claim that we're without not getting the work done. Without objection, the document would be made part of the record. Mr. Biggs says he is recognized for unanimous consent request. Yes, Mr. Chairman, I seek unanimous consent for a packet of 54 um, documents and items which have uh, previously been submitted. Without objection, the documents will be entered into the record. Mr. Chairman, I, may I have another unanimous What purpose does the gentleman seek? Oh, 
uh, Mr. Chairman, I ask unanimous consent that this article that ju was just published about 15 minutes ago entitled Law Professor Jonathan Turley said Democrats are setting a record for a fast impeachment. That's demonstrably false. Be made part of the record. Without objection. Mr. Chairman. Mr. Chairman. Without objection, the document will be made part of the record. Who seeks recognition? Mr. Chairman. What purpose does the gentleman seek recognition? I seek unanimous consent to enter into a record a, um, a tweet that the First Lady of the United States just issued within the hour that says, quote, a minor child deserves privacy and should be kept out of politics. Pamela Carlin, you should be ashamed of your very angry and obviously biased public pandering and using a child to do it, unquote. Without objection, the document will be entered into the record. Um, the, uh, Mr. Stubbe is recognized for the purpose of questioning the witnesses. I'm sorry. Who did I see first? Mr. Stubbe is not here momentarily. Ms. Garcia is recognized. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And I, too, want to thank all the witnesses for their time and your patience today. I know it's been a long day, but uh, the end is in sight. Uh, as my colleague, Ms. Scanlon, observed, the similarities between the president's conduct in the Ukraine investigation and his conduct in the special counsel's investigation are hard to ignore. In fact, we're seeing it as a pattern of a presidential abuse of power. The president called the Ukraine investigation a hoax and the Mueller investigation a witch hunt. He has threatened the Ukraine whistleblower for not testifying like he threatened to fire his attorney general for not obstructing the Russia investigation. The president fired Ambassador Yovanovitch and publicly tarnished her reputation much in the same way he fired his White House counsel and publicly attacked his integrity. And finally, the president attacked the civil servants who have testified about Ukraine, just like he attacked career officials of the Department of Justice for investigating his obstruction of the Russia investigation. Under any other circumstances, such behavior by any American president would be shocking. But here, it is a repeat of what we have already seen in the special counsel's investigation. I'd like to take a moment to discuss the president's efforts to obstruct the special counsel's investigation, a subject that this committee has been investigating since March. Here are two slides, the first one uh, will show as as he did with that with as as the president as he did with Ukraine, tried to coerce his subordinates to stop an investigation into his misconduct by firing Special Counsel Mueller. In the second slide, that will sh this shows that when the news broke out of the president's order, the president directed his advisors to falsely deny he had made the order. Professor Gerhardt. Are you familiar with the facts relating to these three episodes as described in the Mueller report? Yes or no, please. Yes, ma'am. So accepting the special counsel's evidence is true. Is this pattern of conduct obstruction of justice? It's clearly obstruction of justice. And what would you say so, sir? The, uh, the obvious object of this activity is to shut down an investigation. And in fact, the acts of the president, according to these facts, each time is to use the power that he has unique to his office, but in a way that's gonna help him frustrate the investigation. So does this conduct fit within the framers' view of impeachable offenses? I believe it does. I don't think, I mean, the entire constitution, including separation of powers, is designed to put limits on how somebody may go, go about frustrating the activity of another branch. 
So you would say that, that this also would be an impeachable offense? Yes, ma'am. Well, thank you, because I agree with you. The president's actions and behavior do matter. The president's obstruction of justice definitely matters. As a former judge and as a member of Congress, I've raised my right hand and put my left hand on a Bible more than once, and I've sworn to uphold the Constitution and laws of this country. This hearing is about that, but it's also about the core of the heart of our American values, the values of duty, honor, and loyalty. It's about the rule of law. When the president asked Ukraine for a favor, he did so for his personal political gain and not on behalf of the American people. And if this is true, he would have betrayed his oath and betrayed his loyalty to this country. A fundamental principle of our democracy is that no one is above the law. Not any one of you professors, not any one of us up here, members of Congress, not even the President of the United States. That's why we should hold him accountable for his actions, and that's why I, again, thank you for testifying today and helping us walk through all this to prepare for what may come. Thank you, sir. I yield back. Gentlelady yields back, Mr. Neguse. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and thank you to each of the four witnesses for your testimony today. I'd like to start by talking about intimidation of witnesses. As my colleague, Congresswoman Garcia, noted, President Trump has tried to interfere in both the Ukraine investigation and Special Counsel Mueller's investigation in order to try to cover up his own misconduct. And in both the Ukraine investigation and Special Counsel Mueller's investigation, the President actively discouraged witnesses from cooperating, intimidated witnesses who came forward, and praised those who refused to cooperate. For example, in the Ukraine investigation, the President harassed and intimidated the brave public servants who came forward. He publicly called the whistleblower a, quote, disgrace to our country, and said that his identity should be revealed. He suggested that those involved in the whistleblower complaint should be dealt with in the way that we, quote, used to do, end quote, for spies and treason. He called Ambassador Taylor a former military officer with more than 40 years of public service, a, quote, never-Trumper, end quote, on the same day that he called never-Trumpers, quote, scum. The president also tweeted accusations about many of the other public servants who testified, including Jennifer Williams and Ambassador Yovanovitch. And as we know, the president's latter tweet happened literally during the ambassador's testimony in this room in front of the Intelligence Committee, which she made clear was intimidating. Conversely, we know that the President has praised witnesses who have refused to cooperate. For example, during the Special Counsel's investigation, the President praised Paul Manafort, his former campaign manager, for not cooperating. You can see the tweet up on the screen to my side. As another telling example, the President initially praised Ambassador Sondland for not cooperating, calling him, quote, a really good man and a great American. But after Ambassador Sondland testified and confirmed that there was indeed a quid pro quo between the White House visit and the request for investigations, the President claimed that he, quote, hardly knew the Ambassador. Professor Gerhardt, you've touched on it previously, but I'd like you to just explain, is the President's interference in these investigations 
by intimidating witnesses, also the kind of conduct that the framers were worried about, and if so, why? It's clearly conduct, I think, that worried the framers as reflected in the Constitution they've given us, in the structure of that Constitution. The, the uh, um, activities you're talking about here are consistent with the other pattern of activity we've seen with the president either trying to stop investigations, either by Mr. Mueller or by Congress, as well as to ask witnesses to, to um, test, make false documents about testimony. And all those different kinds of activities um, are not the kinds of activities the framers expected the president to be able to take. They expect the president to be held accountable for it and not just in elections. Uh, Professor Turley, you've studied the impeachments of President Johnson, President Nixon, President Clinton. Am I right that President Nixon allowed senior White House officials, including the White House counsel and the White House chief of staff, to testify in the House impeachment inquiry? Yes. And you're aware that President Trump has refused to allow his chief of staff or White House counsel to testify in this inquiry, correct? Yes, but various officials did testify, and, and they are remaining in federal employment. And that does not include the White House counsel nor the White House chief of staff, correct? That's correct. And am I right that President Clinton provided written responses to 81 interrogatories from the House Judiciary Committee during that impeachment inquiry? I believe that's Sounds correct. about right. And you're aware that President Trump has refused any requests for information submitted by the Intelligence Committee in this impeachment inquiry? I have, yes. Are you familiar with the letter issued by White House counsel Pat Cipollone on October 8th, written on behalf of President Trump, and in effect instructing executive branch officials not to testify in this impeachment inquiry? Yes, I am. And am I correct that no president in the history of the Republic before President Trump has ever issued a general order instructing executive branch officials not to testify in an impeachment inquiry? That's where I'm not sure I can answer that affirmatively. I mean, President Nixon, in fact, went to court over access to information, documents, and, and the like, and he lost. Well, Professor Turley, I would just, uh, again, refer you back to the history that's been recounted by each of the distinguished scholars here today, because we know, as we recount these examples, that President Nixon did, in fact, allow his chief of staff and his chief counsel to testify, and this president has not. We know that President Clinton responded to interrogatories propounded by that impeachment inquiry, agree with that. and that this president has not. At the end of the day, this Congress and this committee has an obligation to ensure that the law is enforced. And with that, I yield back the balance of my time. General yields back. Uh, Ms. Mc Ms. McBath. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And professors, I want to thank you so very much for spending these long, arduous hours with us today. Thank you so much for being here. Following up on my colleague, Mr. Nagusa's questions, I'd like to briefly go through one particular example of President, uh, the President's witness intimidation that I find truly disturbing and very devastating. Because I think it's important that we all truly see what's going on here. As the slide shows, on his July 25th call, President Trump said that former Ambassador Yovanovitch would, and I quote, go through some things. Ambassador Yovanovitch testified about how learning about the President's statements made her feel. What did you think when President Trump told President Zelensky, and you read, that you were going to go through some things? I didn't know what to think, um, but I was very concerned. What were you concerned about? She's going to go through some things. It didn't sound good. It sounded like 
A threat? Did you feel threatened? I did. And as we all witnessed in real time, in the middle of Ambassador Yovanovitch's live testimony, the president tweeted about the ambassador, discrediting her service in Somalia and the Ukraine. Ambassador Yovanovitch testified that the president's tweet was, and I quote, very intimidating. Professor Gerhardt, these attacks on a career public servant are deeply upsetting. But how do they fit into our understanding of whether the president has committed high crimes and misdemeanors? And how do they fit into our broader pattern of behavior by this president to cover up and obstruct his misconduct? One way in which it contributes to the obstruction of Congress is that it doesn't just defame uh, Ambassador Yovanovitch. Um, by every other account, she's been an exemplary public servant. So what he's suggesting there may not be consistent with what we know as, as facts. But, it's, um, but one of the things that also happens when he sends out something like this, it intimidates everybody else who's thinking about testifying, any other public servants that think they should come forward. They're going to they're gonna worry that they're going to get punished in some way. They're going to face things like she's faced. That is the woman President Trump has threatened before you. And I can assure you, I personally know what it's like to be unfairly attacked publicly for your sense of duty to America. Ambassador Yovanovitch deserves better. No matter your party, whether you're a Democrat or Republican, I don't think any of us thinks that this is okay. It is plainly wrong for the President of the United States to attack a career public servant just for telling the truth as she knows it. And I yield back the balance of my time. The gentlelady yields back. Uh, Mr. Stanton. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman, and thank you to our outstanding witnesses here today. President Trump has declared that he will not comply with congressional subpoenas. This blanket categorical disregard of the legislative branch began with the president's refusal to cooperate with regular congressional oversight and has now extended to the House's constitutional duty on impeachment, the reason why we are here today. This disregard has been on display for the American people. When asked if he would comply with the Don McGahn subpoena, President Trump said, quote, well, we're fighting all the subpoenas, unquote. Now, we've discussed here today the obstruction of Congress article impeachment against President Nixon. But I think I'd like to go a little bit deeper into that discussion and juxtapose it with the President Trump's actions. Professor Gerhardt, can you elaborate on how President Nixon obstructed Congress and how it compares to President Trump's actions? As I was discussing earlier and, and uh, included in my written statement, President Nixon ultimately refused to comply with four legislative subpoenas. These were zeroing in on the most incriminating evidence he had in his possession. So he refused to comply with those subpoenas, became the basis for that, that third article, and he resigned a few days later. 
Professor Feldman, what are the consequences of this unprecedented obstruction of Congress to our democracy? For the President to refuse to participate in any way in the House's constitutional obligation of supervising him to impeach him breaks the Constitution. It basically says, nobody can oversee me. Nobody can impeach me. First, I'll block witnesses from appearing, then I'll refuse to participate in any way, and then I'll say, you don't have enough evidence to impeach me. And ultimately, the, the effect of that is to guarantee that the President is above the law and can't be checked. And since we know the framers put impeachment in the Constitution to check the President, if the President can't be checked, he's no longer subject to the law. Professor Gerhardt, would you agree that the President's refusal to comply with congressional subpoenas invokes the framers' worst fears and endangers our democracy? It, it does, and one way in which to understand that is to put all of his arguments together and, and then see what the ramifications are. He says he's entitled not to comply with all subpoenas. He says he's not subject to any kind of criminal investigation while he's President of the United States. He's immune to that. He's entitled to keep all information confidential from Congress. Um, doesn't even have to give a reason. Well, when you put all those things together, he's blocked off every way in which to hold himself accountable except for elections. And the critical thing to understand here is that is precisely what he was trying to undermine in the Ukraine situation. Professor Carlin, do you have anything to add to that analysis? Um, I, oh, thanks. Um, I think that's correct. And if I can just say one Please. thing. Um, I want to apologize for uh, what I said earlier about the president's son. It was wrong of me to do that. I wish the president would apologize, obviously, for the things that he's done that's wrong. But I do regret having said that. Thank you, Professor. One of the most important questions that every member of this committee must decide is whether we are a nation of laws and not men. It used to be an easy answer, one we could all agree on. When President Nixon defied the law and obstructed justice, he was held to account by people on both sides who knew that for our republic to endure, we must have fidelity to our country rather than one party or one man. And the obstruction we're looking at today is far worse than President Nixon's behavior. Future generations will measure us, every single member of this committee, by how we choose to answer that question. I hope we get it right. I yield back. The gentleman yields back, Mr. Stubbe. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I've only been in Congress since January of this year, and on the very first day of my swearing in, a Democrat in my class called for the impeachment of the President on day one, using much more colorful language than I would ever use. Since then, this committee focused on the Mueller report and the Russia collusion theory. We all sat and listened to Mr. Mueller state unequivocally that there was no evidence that the Trump campaign colluded with Russia. So that didn't work for the Democrats. So they then changed their talking points and moved to the obstruction of justice theory the president obstructed justice, then that fizzled. Then after coordinating with Chairman Schiff's staff, a whistleblower filed a complaint based completely on hearsay and overhearing other people that weren't on a phone call talk about a phone call between two world leaders, which led to the Intel Committee, so-called impeachment inquiry, which violated all past historical precedent, denied the president basic due process rights and fundamental fairness by conducting the so-called inquiry in secret without the minority's ability to call witnesses and denied the president 
the ability to have his lawyers cross-examine witnesses, a right afforded to President Clinton and every defendant in our justice system, including rapists and murderers. The Republicans on this committee have repeatedly requested all evidence collected by the Intel Committee. As we sit here today, we still don't have the underlying evidence that we've been requesting. Again, a right afforded every criminal defendant in the United States. So instead, we sit here getting lectures from law professors about their opinions. Their opinions, not facts. I guess the Democrats needed a constitutional law refresher course. The Republicans don't. Mr. Chairman, you have acknowledged, and I quote, the House's, quote, power of impeachment demands a rigorous level of due process. Due process means the right to confront witnesses against you, to call your own witnesses, and to have the assistance of counsel. Those are your words, Mr. Chairman, not mine. What are you afraid of? Let the minority call witnesses. Let the president call witnesses. Clinton alone called 14 witnesses to testify. Let the president's counsel cross-examine the whistleblower. Let the president's counsel cross-examine the intel staff who colluded with the whistleblower. In your own words, those are the rights that should be afforded to the president. Rights every criminal defendant is afforded. Even terrorists in Iraq were afforded more due process than you and the Democratic majority have afforded the president. I know, because I served in Iraq, and I prosecuted terrorists in Iraq, and we provided terrorists in Iraq more rights and due process in the Central Criminal Court of Iraq than you and Chairman Schiff have afforded the President of the United States. No collusion, no obstruction, no quid pro quo, no evidence of bribery except opinion, no evidence of treason, no evidence of high crime or misdemeanors. We have a bunch of opinions from partisan Democrats who have stated from day one that they want to impeach the President, and not on this theory, but on multiple other different theories. The American people are smarter, smarter and your ABCs of impeachment that you've had on the screen that were laid out today. And it's extremely demonstrative of your lack of evidence giving you, you called law professors to give their opinions and not fact witnesses to give their testimony today to be cross-examined and the rights afforded to the President of the United States. Mr. Chairman, when can we anticipate that you will choose a date for the minority day of hearings? Mr. Chairman, I'm asking you a question. When can we anticipate that you will choose a date for the minority day of hearings? The uh, gentleman is recognized for the purpose of questioning the witnesses, not for colloquy with colleagues. Well, then I'll do that after my time. I yield the remainder of my time to Mr. Ratcliffe. I thank my uh, colleague from Florida for yielding. Uh, Professor Turley, um, since we last talked, based on questioning from my colleagues across the aisle, it does, in fact, appear that the Democrats do intend to pursue articles of impeachment for obstruction of justice based on the Mueller report. Um, I asked you a question about that. You didn't really get a chance uh, to give a complete answer. In, in your uh, statement today, uh, you make this uh, statement. I believe an obstruction claim based on the Mueller report would be at odds with the record and the controlling law. The use of an obstruction theory from the Mueller report would be unsupported, unsupportable in the House and unsustainable in the Senate. Do you remember writing that? Yes, I do. Why did you write that? Because uh, I think it's true. Uh, the fact is that uh, this was reviewed by Maine Justice. Uh, the special counsel did not reach a conclusion on obstruction. He should have. I think that his justification, quite frankly, was a bit absurd on not reaching a conclusion. But the Attorney General, Deputy Attorney General, did and they came to the right conclusion. I don't think this is a real case for obstruction. But then this body would, would be impeaching the president on the basis of the inverse conclusion. 
I, I don't believe it would be appropriate. Gentlemen's time has expired. Ms. Dean. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Words matter. In my earlier life, professors, I was a professor of writing. I taught my students to be careful and clear about what they put to paper. That is a lesson that the framers of our Constitution understood far better than anyone. They were laying the foundation for a new form of government, one that enshrines democratic principles and protects against those who would seek to undermine them. The Constitution explicitly lays out that a president may be impeached for treason, bribery, high crimes, and misdemeanors. We've heard a lot of words today, foreign interference, bribery, obstruction of justice. Professors, I'd like to go through the president's conduct and the public harms we have discussed today and ask if they would fit into what the forefathers contemplated when crafting those words of the impeachment clause. Professor Carlin, I'd like to ask you about the foreign interference in elections. As Americans, we can agree foreign interference, foreign influence erodes the integrity of our elections. And as you said so plainly, it makes us less free. Yet on July 25, 2019, the president coerced U Ukrainian President Zelensky to announce an investigation into his political rival, Trump's political rival which was corroborated by multiple witnesses throughout the Intelligence Committee hearings. Professor Carlin, can you explain for the American people, in your opinion, whether the framers considered solicitation of foreign interference, and did, would they have considered it a high crime or misdemeanor? And does the president's conduct rise to that level? The framers of our Constitution would have considered it abhorrent, would have considered it the essence of a high crime or misdemeanor for a president to invite in foreign influence either in deciding whether he will be reelected or deciding who his successor would be. Thank you. Professor Feldman, I'd like to talk to you about bribery. During the course of the Intelligence Committee hearings, multiple witnesses gave sworn, unrebutted testimony that the president withheld nearly $400 million in congressionally approved aid on the condition that Russia, excuse me, that Ukraine announce investigations into his chief political adversary. Professor, in your opinion, given those facts and the framers' specific concerns, would you describe the president's behavior here and the use of his public office for a private benefit as rising to those levels? The framers considered, as you said, bribery to consist, bribery under the Constitution to consist of the president abusing his office corruptly for personal gain. If this House determines, and if this committee determines, that the president was in fact seeking personal gain in seeking the investigations that he asked for, then that would constitute bribery under the Constitution. Thank you. Professor Gerhardt, I'd like to ask you about obstruction of justice. The president has categorically refused to produce any documents responsive to congressional subpoenas attacked and intimidated prospective and actual witnesses, including career and civil military, excuse me, military and civil servants, as discussed here, like Ambassador Yovanovitch, Lieutenant Colonel Vidman, Ambassador Taylor, Jennifer Williams, and others. And he directed all current and former administration witnesses to defy congressional subpoenas. Professor, based on that set of facts, does this conduct meet the threshold for obstruction of justice as envisioned in the Constitution? Yes, ma'am, I believe it does. I remember when I was here 21 years ago, along with Professor Turley, testifying before a differently constituted committee uh, on a very serious question regarding impeachment. And I remember a number of law professors very eloquently talking about President Clinton, 
President Clinton's misconduct as an attack on the judicial system. And that's what you just described to me. Thank you, and thank you, professors, all of you, all four of you. What you did today is you brought part of our Constitution to life, and I thank you for that. You've shown what the framers were mindful of when they wrote the impeachment clause of our Constitution. They chose their words, and their words matter. You know, it was my father, Bob Dean, a terrific dad and a talented writer who instilled in me and my brothers and sister a love of language. He taught us our words matter. The truth matters. It's through that lens which I see all of the serious and somber things we're speaking about today. Foreign interference, bribery, obstruction. The framers likely could not have imagined all three concerns embodied in a single leader, but they were concerned enough to craft the remedy, impeachment. The times have found, the times have found us. I am prayerful for our president, for our country, for ourselves. May we, the people, always hold high the decency and promise and ambition of our founding and of the words that matter and of the truth. With that, I yield back, Mr. Chairman. The gentlelady yields back, Ms. McCarcel Powell. Thank you, and thank you, professors, for your time today. It's been a long day. I want to tell you, I did not have the privilege of being born into this country. As an immigrant, when I became a citizen to this great nation, I took an oath to protect and defend the Constitution from all foreign and domestic enemies, and I had the fortune of taking that oath once again when I became a member of Congress. And that includes the responsibility to protect our nation from continuing threats from a president, any president. You testified that the president's actions are a continuing risk to our nation and democracy, meaning that this is not a one-time problem. There is a pattern of behavior by the president that is putting at risk fair and free elections. And I think that we are here today because the American people deserve to know whether we need to remove the president because of it. During the Nixon impeachment, the Judiciary Committee said, quote, the purpose of impeachment is not personal punishment. Its function is primarily to maintain constitutional government. Professor Carlin, to me that means that impeachment should be used when we must protect our American democracy. It is reserved for offenses that present a continuing risk to our democracy. Is that correct? Yes, it is. Thank you. And I want to show you an example of what the president said just one week after the transcript of the July 25th call was released when a reporter asked the president what he wanted from President Zelensky, and he responded with this. Well, I would think that if they were honest about it, they'd start a major investigation into the Bidens. It's a very simple answer. Uh, they should investigate the Bidens, because how does a company that's newly formed and all these companies, if you look at, and by the way, likewise, China should start an investigation into the Bidens, because what happened in China is just about as bad as what happened with, uh, with Ukraine. We've heard today conflicting um, dialogue from both sides, and I just want to ask Mr. Feldman, is this clear evidence from a president asking from, for a foreign government to interfere in our elections? Congresswoman, I'm here for the Constitution. We're here for the Constitution. And when the President of the United States asks for assistance from a foreign power, to distort our elections for his personal advantage, 
that constitutes an abuse of office, and it counts as a high crime and misdemeanor, and that's what the Constitution is here to protect us against. Thank you, and Professor Carlin, are the President's actions a continuing risk that the framers intended impeachment to be used for? Yes, the, the, this takes us back to the quotation from William Davey that we've all used several times in our, in our testimony, which is, a president without impeachment, a president will do uh, anything to get reelected. Thank you, and I wanna show you one more example from the President's Chief of Staff when asked about the President's demands uh, of the Ukrainian president. But to be clear, what you just described is a quid pro quo. It is funding will not flow unless the investigation into the, into the Democratic server uh, happened as well. We, we, do, we do that all the time with foreign policy. When McKinney said yesterday that he was really upset with the political influence in foreign policy, that was one of the reasons he was so upset about this. And I have news for everybody. Get over it. There's going to be political influence in foreign policy. Professor Carlin. I think that um, Mr. Mulvaney is conflating or confusing two different notions of politics. Yes, there is political influence on our foreign affairs. Because President Trump won the election in 2016, we've exited climate accords. We've taken a different position on NATO than we would have taken had his opponent won. But that's different than saying that partisan politics in the sense of electoral manipulation is something that we need to get over or get used to. If we get over that or we get used to that, we will cease to become the democracy that we are right now. Thank you, and I think that that is our greatest fear and threat. And I don't think that anyone is above the law. The Constitution establishes that. This type of behavior cannot be tolerated from any president, not now, not in the future. And I yield back. I'm sorry, Ms. Escobar. I had to check the office on you. Ms. Escobar is recognized. Thank you, Chairman. Professors, thank you so much for your testimony and time today. Many facts, including the President's own words in that famous phone call, have been laid out before our very eyes and ears for months, despite the President's repeated efforts at a cover-up. But it appears that some have chosen to ignore those facts. What we've seen today from those who choose to turn a blind eye is not a defense of the President's actions because, frankly, those offenses are indefensible. Instead, we've seen them attack the process and attempt to impugn your integrity. For that, I'm sorry. Now to my questions. Some have opined that instead of considering impeachment, we should just let this pass and allow the people to decide what to do next or what to do about the President's behavior in the next election. The framers of our Constitution specifically considered whether to just use elections and not have impeachment and rejected that notion. One statement from the framers really stuck with me and it's up on the screen. George Mason asked, shall the man who has practiced corruption and by that means procured his appointment in the first instance be suffered to escape punishment by repeating his guilt? Professor Feldman, I have two questions for you. Briefly, can you please explain why the framers decided that a corrupt executive could not be solved through elections? And can you tell us why impeachment is the appropriate option at this point, considering all the evidence Americans have seen and heard, rather than just letting this be decided in the next election? 
The framers understood human motivation extremely well, and they knew that a president would have a great motive to corrupt the electoral process to get reelected. And that's exactly why they thought that it wasn't good enough to wait for the next election, because the president could cheat and could make the next election illegitimate. That's why they required impeachment. And if they couldn't impeach a corrupt president, James Madison said, that could be fatal to the republic. The reason that it's necessary to take action now is that we have a president who has, in fact, sought to corrupt the electoral process for personal advantage. Under those circumstances, the framer's remedy of impeachment is the only option available. Thank you. I want to play two clips, the first of President Nixon and the second of President Trump. Well, when the president does it, that means that it is not illegal. Then I have an article, too, where I have the right to do whatever I want as president. Stating ...that they are above the law. Professor Carlin, what happens to our republic, to our country, if we do nothing in the face of a president who sees himself above the law, who will abuse his power, who will ask foreign governments to meddle in our elections, and who will attack any witness who stands up to tell the truth? What happens if we don't follow our constitutional obligation of impeachment to remove that president from office? We will cease to be a republic. Thank you. I represent a community that a little over a decade ago was marred by corruption at the local government level. There was no retreat into a partisan corner or an effort by anyone to explain it away. We also didn't wait for an election to cure the cancer of corruption that occurred on our watch. We were united as a community in our outrage over it. It was intolerable to us because we knew that it was a threat to our institutions, institutions that belong to us. What we face today is the same kind of test, only one far more grave and historic. From the founding of our country to today, one truth remains clear. The impeachment power is reserved for conduct that endangers democracy and imperils our Constitution. Today's hearing has helped us to better understand how we preserve our republic and the test that lies ahead for us. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I yield back my time. Gentlelady yields back. That concludes the testimony under the five-minute rule. I now recognize the ranking member for any concluding remarks he may have. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Well, today has been interesting, I guess, to say the least. It has been, we have found uh, many things. In fact, three of our four witnesses here today uh, alleged numerous crimes committed by the president. And at times, it seemed like we were even trying to make up crimes as we go out. Well, if it wasn't this, well, it was the intent to do it. It went along that is interesting today as I started this day, and I'm going to come back to it now. As much as I respect these who came before us today, this is way too early. Because we've not, as a committee, done our job. We've not, as a committee, come together, looked at evidence, taken fact witnesses, paid people here in front of us under oath to say what happened and how did it happen and why did it happen. We're taking the work of the Intel Committee and the other committees, we're taking it at seemingly at face value 
And I will remind all that the chairman even is the biggest proponent of this not happening in his earlier statements almost 20 years ago when he said we should not take a report from another entity and just accept it, otherwise we are a rubber stamp. Now to my Democratic majority, they may not care. Because as I've said before, this is about a clock and a calendar. A clock and a calendar. They're so obsessed with the election next year that they, do, they just gloss over things. In fact, what is interesting is, is, as I said earlier, three of the four witnesses alleged numerous crimes committed by the president. However, during the Intel Committee hearings, none of the fact witnesses identified a crime. If you're writing about this, that should alarm you. So this impeachment narrative being spun by the majority is a fake one. It's majority spending 3% of the facts while ignoring 90% of 7% of the other. In fact, Professor Turley earlier said today, impeachment needs proof, not presumptions. We have one of the fact witnesses in the Intel Committee. I presumed that was what was going on, Mr. Sonderland. You know what is happening here today? Is also we found out today, I thought it was really interesting. This is the Judiciary Committee, but we also found out something today that facts don't matter. In fact, facts don't matter unless we can fit those facts to fit the narrative we want to spin before this committee and the American people. If they don't matter, we also heard one of the witnesses state today that it doesn't matter if aid was released or not. Of course it matters. But unfortunately, the only one of the many facts ignored by the majority. They're ignoring a ton of substantive facts that matter. It apparently doesn't matter to the Democrats that Ambassador Volker, the former special envoy to the Ukraine, made clear in his testimony there was no conditionality on the White House meeting or the aid. The Democrats and their witnesses haven't mentioned that because it's unhelpful to the narrative they're spinning. It apparently doesn't matter that Democrats, to the Democrats in the majority here, that the president did not condition his aid on an investigation. In fact, Mr. Sondland's statement is to the contrary was presumption. It was right here in this room. He called it a guess, right where you're sitting. Called it a guess, a presumption. It's what he thought. God forbid if we walk into our courtrooms or in our, our proceedings now to find somebody guilty of something we're calling a crime and we walk into court now and all of a sudden, well, I thought it was. The witness said, I presumed it was. God forbid this is where we're at. But you know, we've also heard today that you can make inference, though. It's okay if you're just inferring. I don't know about the professors here, for those of us in court on both sides of the aisle, I've never heard him going and hear a judge say, just infer what you think they meant, and that'll be enough. It's not inference. You know, it probably doesn't matter that the president didn't condition a meeting on an investigation. He met with Zelensky with no preconditions. Zelensky didn't even find out about the hold on the aid until it was after a month after the call when he read it in Politico. The aid was released shortly thereafter, and Ukraine didn't have anything to do to get the aid released. Not only was the aid released, but lethal aid was given as well. And if you think that doesn't matter, there were five meetings between the aid, time the aid was stopped and the time the aid was released. And in none of those meetings, between ambassadors and others, including the vice president and senators, none of that was ever connected to a promise of anything on the aid. Nothing was ever connected. Five times. And two of those were after President Zelensky learned that aid was being held. Tell me there's not a problem here with the story. That's why fact witnesses aren't here right now. The evidence against the president is really about policy differences. In fact, three of the Democratic star witnesses, Hill, Taylor, and Kent, weren't even on the call. They read transcripts like everyone else. On July 26, Zelensky met with Volcker and Sondland and made no reference to quid pro quo or hold on aid. 
They met several more times, no references. But none of those are in, those are none of these inconvenient facts, or so many other inconvenient facts, matter to the majority. Moreover, we don't even know what if additional hearings we will have to address other facts. This is the part that bothers me greatly. It is something we have seen from January of this year. No concern about a process that works, but simply a getting to an end that we want. You know, I agree with Professor Feldman. He may find that strange, but I do agree with you on something. It's not his job to assess the credibility of witnesses. It's this committee's job. And I agree. But this committee can't do our jobs if none of the witnesses testify before our committee, even ones that we have talked about calling today, and the majority has said we don't want. To do that, we still don't have an answer on what this committee will do once this hearing ends. The committee received Mr. Sh Chairman Schiff's report yesterday, but we still don't have the underlying evidence. The rules even set up by this body are not being followed to this day, but yet nobody talks about it on the majority side. The witnesses produced by Chairman Schiff and the American people talked about their feelings, their guesses, their presumptions, but even though the facts may not matter to the majority, 97% of the other facts do matter to the American people. So my problem is this. As the ranking member of this committee, one of the oldest, most should-be, fact-based, legal-based committees we have here, where impeachment should have been all along. I have a group of members who have no idea where we're headed next. I bet you, though, if I ask the majority members outside the chairman, they don't have a clue either. Very much one. Because if they haven't, they should share it. Because this is not a time to play hide the ball. This is not a time to say, we're going to figure it out on the fly. You're talking about overturning 63 million votes of a president duly elected who is doing his job every day. And by the way, was overseas today while we're doing this, working with our NATO allies. So the question I have is, where do we head next? We've heard this ambiguous presentation, but here's my challenge. I've already been voted down and tabled today. Mr. Schiff should testify. Chairman Schiff, not his staff, must appear before this committee to answer questions about the content of his report. That's what Ken started 20 years ago, and history demanded. I told the chairman just a while ago and a couple of weeks ago when we were doing a markup, I said, Mr. Chairman, the history lights are on us. It is time that we talk and share how we're going forward. I'm still waiting for their answers. So, Mr. Chairman, as we look ahead, as the Democratic majority promised that this was going to be a fair process when it got to judiciary for the president and others. The president, and you may say he could have come today, what would have this done? Nothing. There's no fact witnesses here, nothing to rebut. In fact, it's been a good time just to see that really nothing came of it at the end of the day. So why should he be here? Let's bring fact witnesses in. Let's bring people in because as you said, Mr. Chairman, you said, your words, we should never on this committee accept our entity giving us a report and not investigate it ourselves. Undoubtedly, we're well on our way to doing that because of a calendar and a clock. So, Mr. Chairman, I know you're about to give a statement, and they've worked on it, and you've worked on it very hard, I'm sure. But I want, before you gavel this hearing, before you start your statement, before you go any further, I would like to know two things. Number one, when do you plan on scheduling our minority hearing day? And number two, why or with, when are we actually going to have real witnesses here that are fact witnesses in this case? When? Or what you said many years ago is faded just like the leaves in fall. 
I don't really care anymore that somebody else gives us a report. Undoubtedly, Chairman Schiff is chairman over everything with impeachment, and he doesn't get to testify. He's going to send a staff member. But I don't even know if we're going to have a hearing past that to figure out anything that's been going on. So my question as I started out today is where is fairness? It was promised. It's not being delivered. The facts talked about were not facts delivered. This president, as facts were given, did nothing wrong, nothing to be impeached, and nothing for why we're here. And in the words of one of our witnesses, Mr. Turley, if you rush through this, you do it on flimsy grounds, the American people will not forget the light of history. So today, before you give your opening statement, your closing statement, before you get to this time, my question is, is will you talk to this committee, your chairman, you hold a very prestigious role. Will you let us know where we're going? Are we going to adjourn from here after you sum up everything saying that they all did good and go out from here? We're still wondering. The lights are on. It's time to answer the question. I yield back. The gentleman yields back. And I want to, uh, before my, before my uh, closing statement, acknowledge that I received a letter today requesting a minority day of testimony under Rule 11. I have not had a chance to read the letter, but look forward to conferring with the ranking member about this request after I have had a chance to review it. Mr. Chairman, I have a I question. You can't review a letter. That is a the demand that we is have. Not, the gentleman is not recognized. There's nothing for you to Jordan. review. I now recognize myself for a closing statement. George Washington's farewell address warns of a moment when cunning, ambitious, and unprincipled men will be enabled to subvert the power of the people and to usurp for themselves the reins of government. President Trump placed his own personal and political interests above our national interests, above the security of our country, and most importantly, above our most precious right, the ability of each and every one of us to participate in fair elections, free of corruption. The Constitution has a solution for a president who places his personal or political interests above those of the nation the power of impeachment. As one of my colleagues pointed out, I have in the past articulated a three-part test for impeachment. Let me be clear, all three parts of that test have been met. First, yes, the President has committed an impeachable offense. The President asked the foreign government to intervene in our elections, then got caught, then obstructed the investigators, twice. Our witnesses told us in no uncertain terms that this conduct Constitute high, constitutes high crimes and misdemeanors, including abuse of power. Second, yes, the President's alleged offenses represent a direct threat to the constitutional order. Professor Carlin warned, drawing a foreign government into our election process is an especially serious abuse of power because it undermines democracy itself. Professor Feldman echoed, if we cannot impeach a president who abuses his office for personal advantage, we no longer live in a democracy. We live in a monarchy or under a dictatorship. And Professor Gerhardt reminded us, if what we're talking about, if what we're talking about is not impeachable, then nothing is impeachable. President Trump's actions represent a threat to our national security and an urgent threat to the integrity of the next election. Third, Yes, we should not proceed unless at least some of the citizens who supported the President in the last election are willing to come with us. 
A majority of this country is clearly prepared to impeach and remove President Trump. Rather than respond to the unsettling and dangerous evidence, my Republican colleagues have called this process unfair. It is not. Nor is this argument new. My colleagues on the other side of the aisle, unable to defend the behavior of the President, have used this argument before. First, they said that these proceedings were not constitutional because we did not have a floor vote. We then had a floor vote. Then they said that our proceedings were not constitutional because they could not call witnesses. Republicans called three of the witnesses in the live hearings of the Intelligence Committee and will have an opportunity to request witnesses in this committee as well. Next, they said that our proceedings were not constitutional because the President could not participate. But when the committee invited the President to participate in this hearing, he declined. The simple fact is that all these proceedings have all the protections afforded prior Presidents. This process follows the constitutional and legal precedents. So I am left to conclude that the only reason my colleagues rush from one process complaint to the next is because there is no factual defense for President Trump. Unlike any other president before him, President Trump has openly rejected Congress's right as a co-equal branch of government. He has defied our subpoenas. He has refused to produce any documents and he directed his aides not to testify. President Trump has also asked the foreign government to intervene in our elections, and he has made clear that if left unchecked, he will do it again. Why? Because he believes that in his own words, quote, I can do whatever I want, unquote. That is why we must act now. In this country, the president cannot do whatever he wants. In this country, no one, not even the president, is above the law. Today, we began our conversation where we should, with the text of the Constitution. We have heard clearly from our witnesses that the Constitution compels action. Indeed, every witness, including the witness selected by the Republican side, agreed that if President Trump did what the Intelligence Committee found him to have done after extensive and compelling witnesses from the Trump administration officials, he committed impeachable offenses. While the Republican witness may not be convinced that there is sufficient evidence that the President engaged in these acts, the American people and the majority of this committee disagree. I also think that the Republican witness, Professor Turley, issued a sage warning in 1998 when he was a leading advocate for the impeachment of Bill Clinton. He said, quote, if you decide that certain acts do not rise to impeachable offenses, you will expand the space for executive conduct, close quote. That was the caution of Professor Turley in 1998 in the impeachment of President Clinton. That caution should guide us all today. And by any account, that warning is infinitely more applicable to the abuses of power we are contemplating today. Because as we all know, if these abuses go unchecked, they will only continue and only grow worse. Each of us took an oath to defend the Constitution. The President is a continuing threat to that Constitution and to our democracy. I will honor my oath. And as I sit here today, having heard consistent, clear, and compelling evidence that the President has abused his power, attempted to undermine the constitutional role of Congress, and corrupted our elections, I urge my colleagues, stand behind the oath you have taken. Our democracy depends on it. This concludes Mr. Chairman, today's Mr. hearing. Chairman.
I have one thing. Mr. Chairman. purpose is the gentleman seek recognition? Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Pursuant to, rule, pursuant to committee rule eight, I'm giving notice to intent to file dissenting views to the committee's report on constitutional grounds for presidential impeachment. Noted. This concludes, today's, he this concludes today's hearing. Chairman. We thank all of our witnesses for participating. Chairman, Without objection, all members will have five legislative days to submit additional written questions. For the witnesses or we additional material, we have a unanimous consent request. Too late. For the witnesses or additional materials for the record. Without objection, the hearing is adjourned. Yeah, that's just typical, isn't it? Just typical.